All right, so Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14 goes to verse 35. I have us going through verse 32 for no particular reason. No, uh, the verse 32 is, I think, the end of this set of items that are here. And this text, there's a, a connection of things. I've laid out an outline, and I think that there's a little cluster at the end that really emerges with the beginning of chapter 5. So this is my effort to break up there. Bruce Waltke, I've mentioned to you his, his commentary. It's a two-volume set on Proverbs. It's an excellent commentary. It's been very helpful for revealing some of the structures in terms of the text. And so if you ever get a chance to sit down uh, with that two-volume set, I think you would find it very enjoyable. It helps if you can at least marginally read Hebrew. All right, so... Proverbs 14 is in the context, remember, we, we've got the, the first part of the book, chapters 1 through 9, and chapters 1 through 9 are the long introduction. We are in the middle of this chunk that is the 375 Proverbs of Solomon. So chapter 14 is still in sort of the first half of that chunk in that collection. And we are, the beginning, the introduction is, is for the child and the youth. And the, the book is focused on the language of, of speaking to men. And we get to this, this collection too, and it's focused on sort of the young man, the adult man, but certainly no longer a child. And it starts out with a discussion of the wise woman. And so I've got the title, you know, Wise Women, Oxen and Fools. And that's the basic structure of the first chiasm that we're going to see here. It starts out, it's, it's sandwiched between the wise woman, and then there's the idea of avoiding fools at the end of the chiasm, and the idea of oxen and their use as capital goods in terms of industry is right in the middle. And so that structure there, uh, I want to read for you verses 1 to 32 of Proverbs 14. And then I'd like to come back and we'll be focusing on the first seven verses and that will probably consume our time for the day. So let's, let's look at that. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises him. And the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride. But the lips of the wise will preserve them. Where no oxen are, a trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. A scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it, but knowledge is easy to him who understands. Verse 6, A scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it, but knowledge is easy to him who understands. Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. The wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is favor. The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger does not share its joy. The house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Even in laughter the heart may sorrow, and the end of mirth may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. 
A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is well and is self-confident. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. The evil will bow before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. The poor man is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends. And the literal translation there is, is lovers, so hated works better. The poor man is hated even by his own neighbor, but the rich man, the rich has many lovers. He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Do they not go astray who devise evil? But mercy and truth belong to those who devise good. In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishness of fools is folly. A true witness delivers souls, but a deceitful witness speaks lies. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. In a multitude of people is a king's honor, but in the lack of people is the downfall of a prince. He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. He who opposes the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. The wicked is banished in his wickedness, but the righteous has refuge in his death. So jumping back to the first first seven verses, you'll notice on page two, I have a chiastic structure there. Now, a lot of the chiasms we've looked at so far will have the centerpiece with two verses. And this one's interesting because it only has one. Um, it starts with this idea of the wise wife. right? It has the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises him. So this is sort of a, you should evaluate, evaluate the importance of a wife because she's the companion of your life. And so you think about, is she wise or is she foolish? And if she claims to be wise, but doesn't walk in uprightness, but instead her ways are perverse, then you say, well, she despises the Lord, and therefore she's a fool. And so that despising of the Lord is a sign for you that she is not a wise woman. Now, the end, verses 6 and 7, it's about avoiding mockers and fools. And it reads, A scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it. But knowledge is easy to him who understands. Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. Right? Not perceiving the lips of knowledge. If somebody doesn't say wise things, they're probably not wise. the evidence you're looking for, especially for a spouse, is not just, well, I didn't hear anything that was too foolish. Okay, did you hear the words of wisdom? 
Right, so this is the positive evidentiary basis to look for someone who's fit to be a companion, especially the companion of your life. Now, this book is written principally to men, right? Now, it applies to women. It's a book not just for men, but the perspective, right? It's consistently appealing to this idea of the woman wisdom, the woman folly, and this idea of the perspective of the man. So that's what's being looked at. But it's obviously applicable if you're looking for a husband, you're looking for the words of wisdom, and you're looking for application. Now, so that's the sort of the A and A prime sandwich, the top and bottom layer. Inside of that, you have foolish speech and wise speech, and the idea that character controls speech. That's the B and B prime. Okay? And then in the middle of that is the idea of initiative and industry. Right? Wealth is generated by initiative and industry and using available resources. And so one of the things you look for, and we read later on in, in, in 14, right, the idea that, that wealth is a crown to the wise man. Okay? So if somebody is working hard and taking resources and applying them in an industrious way, showing initiative and in taking the effort to work, that's a sign of wisdom. And so that is there in the middle. Dominion work is the first calling of man in the garden. And so showing this willingness to work, to be industrious, this initiative taking is sort of the middle of the sandwich. This is the beef in the hamburger for wisdom in this chiasm. And it's interesting how singular it is in terms of having one verse in the middle there. And it's a very meaty verse. So, I want to talk a little bit more about the structure, and then I'll go into some detailed looking at these particular verses. So, the A and A prime section. So, look at that at the bottom of page two. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises him. Okay, so... Look, if you get a godly wife, she'll build your house. If you get a foolish wife, she's going to tear down your house. How do you want to spend your life? Building with someone or building while that person's tearing down? Or maybe you can just tear down together and be in like a mud hole and all you're doing is tearing down all the time, right? And so that's what a lot of our culture is doing. They're just in a mud hole tearing down all the time, right? There's this like no understanding of what to build. Like home life seems like this oppressive awfulness for women to be in because... We have no conception of what women are supposed to do in managing the home. Right? The Proverbs 31 woman doesn't sound to people like running the home. The Proverbs 31 woman sounds like a woman who is totally disconnected from the home to most people. They go, well, she's working. She's doing all this stuff. And we don't see how work, how money making, how estate building, how managing the children, managing the property, how all of that's supposed to fit together in terms of the household. And so... Viewing that in such a way that those things fit together and trying to do them in a way that builds the house, that is the calling. Now, a scoffer, verse 6, seeks wisdom and does not find it, but knowledge is easy to him who understands. Right? The, scoffer, the scoffer hates the claims of divine revelation. The, the scoffer does not want to know what has been revealed, does not examine it. 
when we know that we need to go to the Lord God of heaven and what he has revealed, knowledge becomes easy. And as you have the makings of the systematic understanding of the word of God, as you, as you have the basic questions answered, and as you begin to see how things fit together, what happens is reading becomes easier. When you, when you first start approaching the Bible and you don't have like a systematic theology of understanding how the various pieces put together, do you remember how hard it was to start the process of trying to get through those texts and figure out what is going on here? What does Jesus mean by that? Reading Jesus when you don't have any idea what the rest of the Bible is saying is a very heart-wrenching experience. Right? It's a very difficult process. You're going, how do I how do I make sense of a lot of these things? Right? So you his law texts are so to the heart. Right? And then his his gospel texts, you, you say, how does this fit together with what he's saying about the law over here? And this mercy and this like thundering of the law. How do you deal with that? Right? So there's this difficulty in it, and it's designed that way. Because you need that sort of rhetorical tearing to make it so that in the beginning you are kind of driven to explore the Bible more and to get answers. It's, it's, it's a painful, soul-rending process. The Word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. It separates the inward man. And so that cutting of the Word of God is a cutting away of the deadness of the heart. It's the, the, the circumcision of the heart is a one-time thing that happens, but there's this ongoing sort of way of the cutting away of the deadness. And so that process. So once you have insight, once you have knowledge, there's this way in which it becomes easier and easier to deal with getting through more of it. Now, the danger is Fools discourage us from that. And so we are to part from the presence of the foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lifts of knowledge. So we'll talk more about that as we get down into analyzing the verses. But let's go to the B and B prime. This is page three. Um, So in the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. Okay, so the mouth of the fool is a rod of pride and it utters lies. Okay, so those those two things are said. We, you know, the the false witness is is a is a fool, right? So this idea of both having a rod of pride and uttering lies that's, that's presented. On the other side, there's the lips of the wise, and they preserve the wise. And the faithful witness does not lie. So we have this kind of grouping of things there, and you see that helps to show how clearly there's a chiastic structure. We'll jump back to look at A and A prime. Okay, so the wise woman builds her house, she fears the Lord, and she finds knowledge easy. The foolish woman pulls down her house with her own hands, despises the Lord, as opposed to fearing, seeks wisdom unsuccessfully, as opposed to finding it easy to get knowledge. And she ought to be avoided based upon her profession of falsehood. So, What's apl- what applies to the broad category of companions it applies more pointedly to a potential spouse. So, C. 
Notice there's no C prime, like I said. Where no auction are, the trough, the manger, the feed trough, is clean. But much increase comes by the strength of an ox. Right? It's easier to avoid buying and managing capital goods, but capital goods generate a lot of wealth. Ah, problems. Right? Which to choose? Most people choose to, to not get the capital goods. Most people to not like most people choose to not deploy their money to get capital goods. Right? This is the wealthiest country, the most income-generating country in the history of the world, and also the most debt-laden. So let's now start going through these. Now that we've seen the chiasm, we've, we've seen the pieces together, I've showed you the structure, I've showed you how the chiasm is not just being made up, but you actually see the relationship of those things. Let's now dive into these. So 14.1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. Proverbs 13.20, you may remember, it says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. The companion of fools will be destroyed. If the wife is the companion of one's life, then how much more important is having a wise wife than any other relationship? And women, this is even more true for you, having a wise husband. There is great difficulty in having a foolish spouse. And even if you're the leader, if you're the man, you have to deal with the reality that you, what you build will be torn down if you have a foolish wife. So the wise woman builds her house. What does this mean? Well, we see this sort of idea over and over again. We're, we This this building, the making of things, the, the idea of dominion. So the theme we see throughout Scripture and in Proverbs is what you say and what you do is how you build. Okay, So you yourself need to seek knowledge, you seek wisdom, but what you say and what you do is how you influence other things. So... The wise woman is going to use words and work to accomplish prophetic, priestly, and kingly service. Now, uh, you've heard me say prophetic, priestly, kingly a lot. If you have not meditated deeply on what that means, you need to. Right? How The Shorter Catechism has a great introduction to it. How is Christ our king? How is Christ our prophet? How is Christ our priest? Like go read what the Shorter Catechism has to say on that. Think about that. And how, do, how are those kind of models of how we're supposed to behave? That helps to point the law for us in the direction of glorifying God in a way that other forms do not. So the relationship as a wife, right? the, the wife is to honor the husband. How do you do that? You listen to his words, you work to support him and to achieve his goals and manage what he wants, what he hands to you, what he puts under you. Speaking to give him counsel. Right? You, a wife, husbands, a wife should be your primary counselor. If you're not listening to your wife, if you have a wise wife, and you're not listening to the counsel of your wife, 
What a waste of a close counselor who has closely aligned interests. Nobody has as closely aligned interests with you as your wife does. And so the similarity of interest, if you have a wise wife, why would she not be your primary counselor? So you speak and you share life. Now, one of the temptations for husbands for not talking to wives is we just want to do what we want to do and talking to our wives means we have to get their counsel. So, are we leading our wives so badly that we feel like their counsel is bad? Or, is our plan so bad that we don't want to talk to our wife about it? Or both? God forbid. So, this idea of, of building up that conversation, here's how this goes. It starts out, and there's lots of fighting. And that fighting, that arguing, you learn to fight fair. And as you learn to fight fair, you start to figure out how to effectively communicate about things. And so you have to spend the time and apply biblical conflict resolution in your own marriage. And the alternative is that you can keep your wife in the dark and not get her counsel and not have her help to build. But if she's a wise wife, she's going to try to figure out how to help to build, which means she's going to figure out a way to get conversation to happen. And so it's kind of unavoidable. The wise wife will speak to encourage and honor the husband, both in public and private. So, it's common to mock the male ego. Here's the thing. It's our job to go fight the world. It's our job to create covering. It's our job to deal with problems. It's our job to provide. It's our job to protect. It's our job to be the hated person in society right now. It's our job to try to push through that culture and to deal with the public fighting. It's our job to rebuke other men. It's our job to deal with the fighting. It's our job to deal with the civil sphere. It's our job to deal with the church. It's our job to make sure if everything else falls apart that we make sure that there's bread on the table. We need a cheerleader. You need somebody who's going to slay dragons. You need somebody who's going to fight. There's a lot of work to do. And it takes some steam to get rolling. The need for men to have honor is what helps us to go fight. We need to kiss our wives on the way out the door to go fight. And we need women who, like Spartans, understand honor and will say, come back with this shield or on it. Right? The idea of sending us out to fight and expecting us to be honorable in the field. It is necessary. That's a culture of honor. It's what it takes to get men to behave like men. Because we are mere men. So a culture of honor 
helps to make it so that men can hold the line. And so men, we hold each other to that. One of us breaks, we grab back hold and say, not today. But there are ways that women encourage men that men can't. A culture of honor. Speaking encouragement and honor. In the souls of little boys, women have great power to do this. You care for the minds of children. You teach immortal souls. You rebuke them from danger. You correct them to do what ought to be done. And you give them instruction, the padilla, the nasar, the training in righteousness. You care for their bodies. Every poopy bottom you wipe, you're wiping the bottom of Jesus Christ. Right? This is, you have done it for Jesus Christ. Right? The things you do to the least of these are the things you're doing for Christ. Bottles filled, meals prepared, you are doing it for Jesus Christ. These have an eternal weight of glory associated with them. As you teach children and you care for their bodies, you teach them skills that compound, that build up, so they can exercise dominion competently. You teach children to care about relationships. You know, if, if children don't get relationships right, it's really hard to figure out relationships when you're an adult. Because... What happens without the care of children in relationships from parents is they learn painfully from children. You know, the, the meanest speakers of truths and have truths and lies are children. Right? Children unrestrainedly assault the souls of other children. There's a cruelty to children that is difficult for men to learn. It takes like communist Russia to figure out how to be that mean to people. Right? This is, this is what children are capable of doing. And so this, this sort of harmful speech, if you don't teach your children, they will have the great pleasure of being taught by other children. And so you teach them to care for relationships The principal relationship we learn is to honor the parents. That's with other humans. Care for property and the ability to manage property. Things like picking up and then as they get older, having them do chores, having them do things where they accomplish things and they remove work. Right? It is... It is a cliche of cliches that children are not worth the investment. It should not be so in Christian homes. We, we learn how to 
work with them and for them to help to build the estate and create value on it. The wise woman builds with servants and builds up the household. She's the mistress of the home. So, men, if you have a wife who honors you and sends you off to battle, if you have a wife who is a mother who helps your children to be valuable and useful, if she is the mistress of the home and manages servants and property, has profitable employment, helps to send people to do things that are profitable, the teaching, rebuking, correcting, instructing of servants, putting household rules there. And you might think we don't have any servants. I'll tell you what. You employ more people through the various services you use than historically people have. Right? You have all sorts of things that you pay for, and you have to manage those things. And you know how much time does it take to get on the phone and deal with whatever problem from whatever person you're paying whatever money, and they've got a guy in India that takes your phone call. Right? That takes time. That's a management of servants. That's a management of service. Okay, so being able to hand things over, to ask for intelligent management of things, to have problems be resolved, that's a management of the estate and of the home. Materially, she builds her house. She works with the husband to build the estate and apply the law to it. There's more to do than there's time for. Okay, How do you make it so that there is um, a good use of the capital assets? We live in a time where you can take a dollar and buy a fractional stock without ever getting off the sofa, right? You can you can hit transfer on Venmo into your Robinhood account and buy a you know fiftieth share of you know Exxon, which they pay great dividends. Sorry, just kidding. So this this idea that. There is stuff to do and there are resources to use and time is scarce. A wise wife is a second person with a unity of interest in building the estate with you unlike anybody else. A wise wife builds the house by beautifying it, making it pleasant to be in. Godly art, which... I thought I had on here. Does yours have something about the second commandment and the seventh commandment with godly art? Okay, great. So mine doesn't. So so making things beautiful. There are a couple of tendencies that people have when they try to beautify things. So here's a warning. Buddha is not beautiful. Okay? Eastern philosophy... Eastern philosophy idols are not beautifying their idols in the home. Okay, go read the larger catechism on what you're supposed to do with idols that are under your authority. You're supposed to destroy them. If you know where the brook Kidron is, you can smash them up, burn them, and put the ashes there. Okay? That's what you're supposed to do. Thanks for that. All right. Images of nakedness, seventh commandment, breaching things. You know, if you read Calvin when he talks about the images that exist in you know papal churches, not churches, papal dominion outposts of Satan. When you when you read about what he says about the art there, you walk into the Sistine Chapel, you look around, there's just a bunch of nudes, right? And you go, 
this is supposed to help me in the worship of God. Calvin's comment is, the inmates in brothels are more modestly attired than the paintings in these papal buildings. I will leave that there. So, wives, beautifying the home in a way that honors the Lord. Men, making it so that the home is beautiful. If it were not for women, we would die in the smell of dirty socks. This is the reality. And so, having the blessing of that, where as opposed to this sort of ugly world, there is a a beautifying that occurs, is a great blessing. And leads into hospitality. And hospitality, as you know, is one of the drums I beat. And that's because I think the Bible does. And so, I would like to show you 1 Kings chapter 10. If you've been here long, you've heard me go to this. And if you haven't, you're about to. 1 Kings 10. First Chronicles 9 is very, very similar. First Kings 10, what we have is the introduction of the Queen of Sheba. So we're in the height of Solomon's reign, and this is sort of the last grand thing to be said about Solomon's rule before the decline. And so, 1 Kings 10, verse 1. Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So she has questions about the Lord, and she's coming to test, is this the true religion? Is this the right philosophy? Does Solomon have wisdom? Is this the real deal? If you're a Christian who's hospitable, you will become a target of this. Your home will be a place where people will come and ask you questions. And that's actually your trap. We want to draw people in and get them to talk to us about these things and ask us these questions. You need the wisdom to be able to answer them. And you beautify to make it so that it's not only that you give true answers and answer the objections, but that it's beautiful. Now, listen here about how the hospitality plays into this. Verse 3, So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers, and, and Second Chronicles 9 says the cupbearers and their apparel, like the waiters. Okay? Cupbearers and their apparel. And his entryway, which he went up to the house of the Lord, 
there was no more spirit in her, right? She gives up the fight. And she just goes, I... Wow. Then she said to the king, it was true, a true report, which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes, and indeed, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy are your men, and happy are these your servants, who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord has loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great quantity, and precious stones. There never again came such abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Also the ships of Haram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of almug wood and precious stones from Ophir. And the king made steps of the almug wood for the house of the Lord, for the king's house, and for the king's house. Also harps and stringed instruments for singers. Then ever again came such almug wood, nor has the like been seen to this day. Now King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired, whatever she asked, beside what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity. The royal generosity is the standard allotment for guests, sort of whoever's sitting at the table gets this every day. And the idea is it's more food than a person would normally eat. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. With hospitality, the goal is to get the communication of wisdom, right? There's, there's this communication of the truth. You're evangelizing or discipling. You're seeking to answer questions. You seek to see the house be beautiful. That's where I had my thing. That's the second commandment and the, the seventh commandment. Food. You know, food has a powerful effect on people. The appearance of it, the smell of it, the taste of it, the quantity of it, if it's healthy, right? If you can... If you can provide food and you give enough so the person feels like you've provided for them a more than sufficient meal, right? that's a powerful act of generosity, both in terms of the time and the provision of it. And people don't have hospitality in their own houses much anymore. They just don't. And so this having people into the home creates opportunity for relationship, Meals are, are biblically and historically a place where you're able to engage on a personal level that shows sort of a, a kind of trust or openness that's different from other settings. Now, anybody who's ever planned a wedding or any sort of significant parting knows that the seating arrangements are a particularly important thing to negotiate. No, they don't want to talk to them. No, 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 no. No, no don't do that. No, don't do that. No, we're not doing that. It's not happening. Move them over there. Move them further. Right, so that thing, that process, the seating of the servants, but the seating of the whole party, right, is a part of that. Doing that wisely is, is a very difficult thing. So the seating arrangements, making them beautiful, having them be useful interactions, and having good service in it. You, you've, you've seen, you know, having too many people in the space and having it be hard to get out and having it hard to get access to things, right? If you manage all those things well together, it's a display of wisdom. And so, 
the service of the waiters and their apparel. In the service of the waiters, you talk about a dinner service and you, you, know, you look at, oh, what a fine service or what an elegant service. Or the, the actual stuff you eat on and, you know, the utensils, that's a part of that. And so this idea of, of setting things up to, to be nice. And then these waiters, they have apparel on, respectable attire. And most of us don't employ full-time waiters in our homes, but some of us have kids and they are waiters and cupbearers. And if they are well attired and serving well, and if they are able to support the hospitality, they can add something to that. And so the respectable attire, the service itself, bringing the enjoyable food with service, with a pleasant attitude, an honoring attitude to guests. Now, the last one, the entryway to the house of the Lord. Typically, most of us are not going to have the Solomonic Temple right outside the east wing. So if that's the case, then perhaps, however, you might invite your guests to family worship. And the way in which you show that to not be awkward, but to instead be beautiful, because it is something that you are accustomed to doing, and the way in which that experience of worshiping with your family and family worship is something that displays the beauty of our God, that's a powerful testimony. And so when you think about hospitality, these sort of give us categories to consider the things to do in hospitality well. The wise woman builds her house. It wasn't just the questions and the answers, but it was also all of the beauty. And so that beauty is a powerful part. This is you know, and think about this. Solomon was able to focus on the questions because he had people under his authority who took seriously the importance of doing those things well. And so managing the home well and dealing with those that aspect of it for hospitality is powerful. So the foolish woman pulls down her household with her own hands. Um stops the husband from growing, uh, encourages sort of an escape, causes the children to not have orderly discipline, provokes to wrath, and the father would also be at fault here, right? If you have a wife who is not growing in wisdom and not applying things, then what are you doing in your leadership, right? The idea of provoking children to wrath is focused primarily at fathers. Don't provoke your children to wrath. And so we have this orderly discipline, disciplining using process and teaching, and not having expectation without investment. We should have high expectations, and we do invest heavily in our children. Servants. Attracting bad servants, repulsing good servants, this is the sort of thing that foolishness does. Um, preventing good servants from thriving, encouraging servants to sin, neglecting to assist your husband in the running of the estate. These are the kinds of things the foolish woman would do. These are all ways to tear down the building of the house. Materially, what can be done to tear down the house? Overconsumption, hoarding without investment, um, failure to help the husband to invest. So rather than beautifying, the wife could also create ugliness by making the home unpleasant, making things ugly, making it so that it's like a man doesn't live there. Right? That would be a sort of way to make it so that it's not something that the husband's going to want to be hospitable in. Right? So uh, that sort of consideration. Now, as a hostess, the, the woman who tears down, 
the most competent sort of fool is going to have only a totally political hospitality, right? Don't invite the the righteous poor. Don't invite the the wise person without power, right? That kind of a thing. And so there's a totally political effort to entertain, to get something out of other people. Hospitality should be a mixture of helping to get business done and helping to minister to other people. That's what hospitality is for. Helping to get business done and helping to bless and minister to other people. And there's an enjoying of gifts, but that enjoying of gifts is a part of the blessing and, and ministering to other people. So that is how the wise woman builds a house and the foolish woman pulls it down with her own hands. Hopefully there was some content there that you find useful. So if we go into verse 2, he who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is perverse in his ways despises him. It's foolish to say that you love and fear God and then ignore and break his law. Right? Being perverse in your ways is a despising or hating of God. This is sort of what James says, where he says, you know, you say you love God, but you know, you mistreat the image of God. And so if you're doing things that are demonstrative of a hatred of God, then there's not a reason to believe that you are upright internally. Think of this in the context of considering a woman for marriage or a man for marriage. Verse 3, In the mouth of a fool is a rod of pride, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Okay, so the mouth of the fool holds the tongue, right? There's the rod. Right? The tongue is sort of a whip or a rod, which says foolish things, and those foolish things bring pain on the speaker. Those foolish things bring pain on the speaker. The fool's mouth beats the fool. Man who's gaining wisdom will use that pain caused by the words of his own mouth to learn to speak better. The lips of the wise have a preserving or healing effect rather than a harming effect. So those are the two sides of that. So verse 4. Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. Okay, so think about this. If you have an ox, let's say you own a farm, and on a farm, you plow the ground, put seeds in it, and you've got a harvest, and you go, you know, having a beast of burden would make it so the income is a lot higher, make it a lot easier to do more with less human labor. The problem is I have to feed the ox, and then I have to clean the trough after the ox eats. And that's really an expense. I've got to feed them. And it's a lot of work to do that. It's very easy for us to make excuses to not do things that obviously generate a great return. Because they're hard. We have a tendency to think that the world is sort of this like black box of complexity. That unless you have all the right skills and the right connections, you can't do anything to make money. Here's the reality. Everybody everywhere is a doofus. And if you're marginally competent and you try a little bit, you can do a lot of things. I'm just walking around not knowing what I'm doing most of the time. And some of it works. 
This is reality. Okay, Google's not a magical place with like the most intelligent people on the planet. The average pay there is three hundred grand a year. Okay, at Google, three hundred grand a year for the average person. I assure you, many of them are overpaid. Right, the value that these people generate. This is not magic land. People in California don't get an extra hundred IQ points. This is not what is real. There is a lie in our heads that, you know, we can't do things, we can't get things done, we can't succeed. Like, you just work towards a goal using lawful means, and it tends to generate wealth. This is the structure of reality. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you fail. Sometimes there's jobs, failed harvests. Ukraine had a lot of them under the Soviet Union, like 20 in a row. Probably nothing to do with the political system, just really bad weather. And so this problem of not viewing work as profitable is what makes it so that we don't deploy the resources we have. Work is messy and work is hard. The curse makes it less fruitful and less reliable than it would have been if there had been no curse and no fall. So that means we have to be harder workers. Capital goods take work to deploy. Like, there used to be infomercials. I don't know if TV exists anymore. There used to be infomercials at around 3 a.m. Some get-rich-quick scheme would seem really prudent. Like, I don't think I did know it was that easy to buy real estate. And yes, how can I get zero down property? And so you buy one of those things, you read the book, and the book sounds like a lot of work. You put the book down, never come back to it. Maybe that's just me. Okay, why didn't those things work? Well, they probably actually had some pretty good ideas. And I didn't do them because I didn't want to do the work. And I think a lot of the time, that's the reality is we just don't want to do the work. So you can buy the tools and not use them. You can buy the workout equipment and not use it. Right? You, can, you can do that thing and not pick up the tools. And so we have to not only put our hand in the dish, but we have to actually lift it to our mouths and eat. And that is the requirement here. However, much profit comes by deploying the capital goods. Working involves initiative to deploy, and we have to then not only create, but we have to manage it. We have to keep it. We have to continue to use the things that generate value. So we have an imaginary view of the world that everything is too complex and too hard, and that the world is some well-tuned machine, and if we haven't figured out the hum of the machine and we can't get into it. This is a lie that prevents us from being productive. Buy an ox, plow. That's it. Find something useful, okay? Find something that requires you to put some time, effort, money into that generates money. Find the best investment you can and start putting excess into it. Generate value. Multiply the creating force. If you don't, you won't have the resources for a wise wife to deploy, 
If you don't, you won't have the resources necessary to engage in public rule. If you don't, you won't have the resources to have an honored station. If you don't, then you won't be able to see the dominion that you want to see with the word of God imposed on it. This is what's necessary. You deploy effort and capital, and you deal with the messes. Work is messy. Work is hard. Get to work, and you have to clean stuff up. That's the way it is. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. Open your Bibles to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way. And that word difficult is better translated as confined. Um, And actually, sorry, the, the verse starts out with, the majority text says, how narrow. How narrow is the gate, and confined is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. It's it's narrow way, it's confined. It's, it's not a broad way, it's not a bunch of different things, it's a very specific and defined way. And that's a that's the doctrine of the gospel. And so we then go into this, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Now people hear fruits and you automatically think of work. Okay. Prophets are the tree in this analogy. What do prophets generate? Prophecy. They speak words. So the fruit here is their doctrine. Okay. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. The context here is prophets. If you're a prophet and you're a true prophet, the prophecy you prophesy is going to be true. Now, the difference is one's unbelieving, the other one's believing. And so this idea that good fruit, bad fruit, good tree, bad tree, this is saying the character of the prophet is something that yields the fruit. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They appealed to their works. Look, we prophesied, we cast out demons, and we did many wonders in your name. The appeal to works here makes it so that Jesus judged them by their works. And he found them guilty, lawless. 
This is an illegal use of the law. If you want justification by works, you will not be justified. You will be condemned. This is the false doctrine they are putting forward. These bad prophets, these wolves in sheep's clothing, these men who bear bad fruit, their doctrine is a justification by works. They preach justification by works because inwardly they are evil. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. How do you do a doctrine? These sayings, beware of false prophets. I guess you can obey, beware of false prophets. And so if instead you listen to true prophets and believe in the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and the mediatorial work of Christ alone, you would have faith on the rock of Jesus Christ. And so when you're looking at witnesses and companions and this would apply to spouses, what you should consider is, is this a faithful witness? Is this a false witness? A faithful witness does not lie. A false witness will utter lies. You look at the character of a person and you consider the danger of being around them and the influence of their lies or their truth-telling. Verse 6, a scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it, but knowledge is easy to him who understands. The scoffer rejects the revealed wisdom out of pride, and because he will not consider how it alone possesses answers that are meaningful and coherent as a system. Scoffers are trying, generally, to shoot down Christianity and move on. If you, get, if you seek to get them to actually consider the revealed system of truth, the danger for them is that they would have to change, which would be very painful. So, the scoffer sort of looks for answers where he won't find it. Right? You ever seen the old comic? You have you know, somebody looking in a really bright area for something they lost. A friend comes along and says, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my pen. I lost my pen. Oh, look around together for a while. Can't find it still. The person who came to help looks over at the original person and says, so do you remember where you last had it? Yeah, over there. Why aren't we looking there? The light's better here. Right? This idea of looking in the place where you don't actually expect to find what you're looking for. What you look for is you're looking for a place that you're familiar with or that you prefer or that you like. And so this this sort of looking for answers where you know you're not going to find that answer, this is where the scoffer, the seeker goes. 
They're not looking in the Bible. They're not searching out the depths of Scripture. They're not looking for solid, reformed men to answer their concerns and to be able to deal with it. There's a running away from the answers. And so, as they search for wisdom, they don't find it. Big surprise. If you know what book to read, the most widely published book in the history of the world, and you seek to engage with the answers of it and consider them, and you engage in a critical analysis, and you compare Scripture with Scripture, and you look at the system, knowledge is easy to the one whom God has already humbled and given insight to. Verse 7, Go from the presence of a foolish man when you do not perceive in him the lips of knowledge. We separate from fools who will not be corrected, who will not hear rebuke, who will not learn, who will not speak what is right. You push them away by making them deal with Christianity. Or, if they refuse to do that, then you go, I'm not going to waste my time. We'll stop there. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights? Mr. Cordova? So, PGNL reads uh, So, it is, it is always sin to create, uh, say, like, a and then even to demonstrate that you should be destroyed. Right? Do you recall? Say it would be created. Yes, creating it and then. Not destroying it would be neglect. Preserving it, dusting it, that would also be sin. Sure. So, but the initial creation of it is sin. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little cluster of verses. I ask that you would bless the women with insight from the section about the wise woman, and that you would bless the husbands to be careful in their companionship and the care for their wives. Father, I ask that you would cause us all to be wise companions for each other that you would help us to be of service to each other. Father, we thank you for your word that we are not left in darkness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.